by 2014, the pain was so, I'm going to cry when I read it, I know. The pain was so debilitating, so dehumanizing, that I felt like I was losing my grip on life. And the pain monster found a new friend, a sadness monster, an isolated being who no, no longer looked, sounded, or behaved like the person my family and friends once knew and loved. Today's episode was a very personal episode for me, and you'll hear in the podcast quite emotional. For those that you don't know, I live in chronic pain, and it's something that I share with today's guest, who also suffers from chronic pain. Clinical counsellor, educator, she has a degree in education and psychology from London, and a PhD in public health. She's an author of a book, Living with Chronic Pain, From OK to Despair and Finding My Way Back Again. She's an absolutely incredible human, and it was my absolute pleasure to I sit down and have a conversation with her today. Episode 91, Dawn McIntyre. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Well, thank you for coming onto the podcast, Dawn. I'm really excited to have a chat to you because, A, I think you're my first clinical um, expert, so to speak, in regards to uh, being on. Most people that have come on have had personal stories of overcoming adversity, but you're coming from it from a personal story and also a clinical background as Uh well in um, psychiatry, psychology, psychiatry. Well, psychology, clinical counselling, yeah. Okay. Background in psychology, absolutely. Um, so that's that's fascinating to me. And you've written a book, Living with Chronic Pain from Okay to Despair and Finding My Way Back Again, which I am really interested in getting into. But take me, take me back because I really sort of want to understand what drove you um, towards the counselling aspect of things because I think it ties quite well into your story. Sure. Um, and I don't want to devalue your achievements because they're quite extensive, so I'll oh. let you sort of talk about <laughs> I've why. Had, you know, I've now... 64 in a couple of weeks, I've had time to accumulate some, some, I guess, experience and wisdom. So, um, look, I started counselling almost by accident, really. Um, I've always been interested in working with people, always wanted to do that. And my first degree was in education and psychology and um, 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 educational psychology, working with young kids. And as a um, young married woman, we were foster parents and have always been interested in um, children's development. It's, it's just always been something that's interested me and and the context around which that can happen and or be limited, either can you know expand and have full capacity or limited capacity for people. So that's always been an interest for me. And I've always been, I guess some people say a bit of a softy, uh, always very connected with people and enjoy like, enjoying people. Um, And I was actually working in a different area. I was working um, with um, the health department in a range of areas looking at injury prevention. I was very interested in that. Um, And again, looking at how we can make people's lives better and particularly injury prevention for young people. And um, I had been talking to my GP, going backwards and forwards to my GP, mainly due to my pain in my earlier Um, years in my kind of late 20s I guess early 30s and I was saying look I'm thinking of really doing counseling but I'm doing this other work and I'm doing well at it and you know got a career progression 
but I'd really like to do counselling. And I had a psychology background and my GP eventually said to me this particular day, he said, Dawn, I've been seeing this patient and he's driving me nuts. Can you see him? Um, <laughs> said, well, yeah, I can. I have the training. I had done my training with the Australian Counselling Association. And um, so I have my counselling training under my belt as well as my psychology training. So I said, yeah, why not? So he said, look, I can put you up in a room down the road. Just take this guy off my hands, please. And that's actually, to be honest, how I started. Um, it was a bit of a, it became a little organic after that. I I developed um, obviously generalized interest, but particularly interest in relationship counseling um, at that stage and did a lot of work in relationship counseling and a lot of interest in stigma. I was very interested in stigma. And in fact, fast forward my PhD, uh, which I didn't start till I was in my early 50s, I have to say, um, was on stigmatized child death. So it was on identifying the gaps in support. So my interest, my professional interest has always been looking at gaps in support. You know, where are people falling through the cracks? What can we do? And who do we need to speak to, to actually start waving the flag? about those things so that's kind of how I can how I started it's a little bit of an unusual uh, it avenue, is. I guess mm. yeah when you're I've always wondered this when you're actively treating people that are dealing with heavy topics and heavy I mean you're yep. talking about uh, um with the child loss and so forth I mean that's heavy grief counseling absolutely how do you then not energetically take that on mm -hmm. because yeah, how do you protect yourself and your own mental health when you're Gosh, dealing Fiona, with day in and day in and day out? That's a really good question. And I have to say, during my PhD, I had six different supervisors because um, a couple of reasons that they let that they changed, but three of them changed because they could not cope with the intensity of the subject matter. So wow. it, it is very difficult, but. I think it's the difficult things that someone has to take on. And when I was doing my PhD, for example, the thing, the time for anyone that's done a PhD, they'll know there are times where you think, why on earth did I go down this track, especially <laughs> as a mature student, um, when you're not familiar with the system. Um, but the, the reason I kept going was I had promised to give a voice to those grieving parents who didn't have the strength, the capacity to have a voice for themselves so I had promised to be their voice so in that regard I kept going because I had made a promise to people who were in a far more difficult position than I was and similarly I guess with the counselling Fiona it's about this is their story and yes it's really important for me to make a connection um, look sometimes I'm only human and I am a bit of a softie, as I said before. So sometimes it is really hard. I have a yeah. professional supervisor and um, I am also a professional supervisor for counsellors. So we debrief with our professional supervisors if there's something that's really difficult. But also I've got a wonderful husband who I speak to without obviously mentioning names or any identifiable, um, you know, identifiable ways of you know, working out who it is, um, then I, I often speak to him and he's absolutely fantastic. So, and I have a couple of strategies, have a shower, you know, if it's been really difficult, have a shower, wash it off, you know, shake my hands, um, sometimes go and read a book or watch something mindless on Netflix um, just to try and shift the mood. Sometimes it is really hard. I mean, there are times when it 
it's much harder than others. How did you get into the grief counselling compared mm. to a normal, I mean, you mentioned you do relationship counselling. I mean, there's all different types of counselling yeah. that people can, I suppose, specialise in. How did you end up going into more of the grief side of things? Mm. I worked at the MARTA Children's Hospital for a long time looking at injury prevention. I was um, director of a safe community support centre there and an injury surveillance unit, uh, manager of the injury surveillance unit. And I what saw... Is that, what is, sorry, what is an injury surveillance unit? Collecting injury data across uh, from hospitals across the country and looking at that data and trying to identify again um, where the main injuries are happening and trying to put in prevention strategies. Right. So you're looking at, okay, we've had X amount of dog bites, we've had X amount Correct. of running with scissors, we've had an X amount of pool... Pool, pool incidents. Drownings, yes. Right. Um, okay. what, are, what are the factors around that and what are the things that we can do? So, for example, I co-authored, having looked at all of that data, I actually co-authored the pool fencing legislation in the 1990s wow. as a result of, not just a result of the work I did in my part, but it had been going on for many, many years with many key people in that area. But the end result of that data collection um, was the pool fencing legislation. So that's an, a, an example of how that data is used. Um, another Saved example is burns. Many Fiona. children's lives. Mm. And another example is burns. So many years ago, there was many people working in the burns field, but that data um, helped us look at reducing the temperature that comes, the, the legislation around temperature in the homes, about the uh, bringing it down to, I think it's 55 now, um, to reduce burns in schools. So that's an example of how that data is used. Hang on a minute. Let's explain that to me again. We have to bring down the temperature in the homes to 50. What? Okay, so, in a, and I'm not sure of the legislation now because I've been out of this for quite a long time, but um, the temperature of the, the water that comes into your home through your ca- kitchen taps and bath taps oh. ought to be turned down to, I think it's 55 degrees because that's a safer temperature than like your 70 degrees which can cause immediate lifelong damaging burns um helmet legislation for bikes for example so all of these things are a result of the injury data that's collected across the country and analyzed that's interesting i thought that you to have a burn it had to be like 100 degrees but boiling water no absolutely not but I don't want to go into a discussion about that because I'm not an expert on burns. Okay. Well, there you go. So we always get our rabbit holes on yeah. this podcast. But, yeah, like that's interesting. Wow. So, okay. Hmm. So okay. I was always looking at safety, um, the impact, but more the impact, the psychosocial impact on the individuals because, you know, you go to hospital and, you know, often you get really fantastic medical treatment. And in this country we're very fortunate for all the – all of the conversations that happen in general, we're very fortunate in this country. Um, but what often gets missed is the psychosocial impact of the event that happened that brought the person to hospital in the first place or the impact on the extended family and friends. And that's not necessarily the hospital's role to deal with that, of course, but whose role is it? <laughs> um, so... In grief, when we're looking at grief, the impact of grief is so unique to each individual, depending on their, and the same with pain, depending on their cultural background, their support systems, their their geography, so many reasons why everyone's experience of perhaps the same specific thing 
is completely different experience for them. Um, so I was really interested in that around grief. Mm. How long are you still working in the grief field? Yes. So I work wow. in support. Uh, I work about three, three and a half days a week now, and I'll talk about that a bit later as to why it's it's that. Um, but I work on pain as a pain behaviourist, so pain management support on grief and also generalised counselling. I get a lot of work still in the generalised counselling area, um, but I do work a lot. I have a, I don't like to use the word expertise because I think until the day I'm six feet under, um, I don't think we ever get to be real experts in anything, but certainly my experience in, in that area and continuing to learn and grow is in the grief and the pain management. And there's a massive crossover. And, you know, I talk about that in my book. One thing I hadn't realised was when I was in my pain space, how much of that was similar to, and I'm not for one minute suggesting that living with pain is the same as losing a child. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that there were many elements of the grief process that were very similar. I realised when I was in it, when I was so desperate, that there was so much grief around pain. Well, that's a good segue. So uh, talk to me about the your pain journey because you, you have lived in chronic pain and that's what sparked the book. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So talk to me about your pain journey and um, was there a particular event? Was it an accumulative yeah. eff effect? Mm -hmm. uh, and then what sort of prompted you to, I suppose, what was the catalyst for you to write the book? Yeah. Both those things, there was a specific event and there was and it was a cumulative effect. If, if I can, I know that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but I'll unpack it in a minute. Um, the other thing, though, is the reason I wrote the book, and I just want to come to comment on that, is because um, it was gaps in support again. It was gaps in understanding. So in the same way that my PhD was about gaps in um, support and understanding of people who very sadly, had lost a child. This was about gaps in understanding through my own experience, purely the world according to Dawn, you know, but through my own experience um, about living with chronic pain and how it's viewed and how we manage it. So that was the main reason for writing the book, not because I wanted to tell my story. I, I didn't, um, but I, I was passionate, absolutely passionate about letting people know all of these gaps that I found. And I, I, I'll talk about that later because you asked me another question, which I, <laughs> um, where did my pain start? Um, when I was 10 days old, I uh, had had to, I had to have major stomach surgery. Wow. And I continued having major stomach surgery basically through my childhood uh, and into my adulthood. So I've had about 20 stomach surgeries in total, including bowel resections and uh, various things. And that... Can caused... I hang on? Can I ask why? Yes, I had a blockage of the bowel when I was born. Wow. Um, I'm now nearly 64 next month. And in those days, they treated it very differently to the way they possibly are treating it today. So I had multiple surgeries. Um, which caused me to have very little core strength because I had a lot of adhesions and a lot of muscle damage around the around the scar site. Um, so my core strength wasn't great. Never knew anything about that at the time. Um, I, I missed five to six years of schooling overall as a result of that. 
um, wow. as a result of constant ill health and constant pain. But I kind of got on with it because that was my life. That's just how it was. I didn't know any different. Um, and and I've written about that quite a lot in my book about about my life and how it got me to the point of the tipping point of kind of where I thought a total disaster. Um, but I also loved horses. I loved animals, uh, loved dogs. I've got four dogs now and we're trying to keep them out of here so they don't bark. <laughs> Under your <laughs> if they come in, Fiona. it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and um, I wanted to ride and I ended up having my own horse and I decided I would do riding as a career. And I really enjoyed it. On this particular day, I was lunging a friend's horse. And I'm telling all the stories in the book now. I have to, be, I have to keep it short, <laughs> won't I? I'm, it's I'm a lung- podcast. It's a story medium. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. Um, I was lunging a friend's horse. It's sudden. And if you, for those that don't know what lunging is, it's uh, the horse is on the ground. I'm on the ground. It's at the end of a long rope. And you're kind of training the horse going around in circles basically testing its gait so I was doing that and all of a sudden the horse stopped pawed the ground looked at me and knocked me over and as I tried to get up again from that it repeated that now at the time of course I had a terrible backache um but I was kind of scared to tell my parents, not that my parents were scary, they were wonderful, but they never ever wanted me to ride because they were worried about the danger. And they had kind of lived through my ill health for so long, the last thing they wanted to do was put me, have me put myself in that position. But, you know, Murphy's Law, um, that's what happened. But I went to stay with a friend for a couple of days and didn't tell them. And anyway, gradually over the year, I got to the point where I could no longer mount my horse. And I used to play netball for, um, you know, for the school, et cetera. I could no longer play netball. I could no longer play sport. Um, I used to love table tennis, could no longer play table tennis. And so I realized I had done myself some serious damage. Um, yeah. So whether, so those kind of two events, I think were quite critical, the kind of long-term event of constant pain because of my stomach. And then that particular um, event with a horse were probably the t- the things that then formed um, a change in my kind of sympathetic and parasympathetic system, oversensitized my nervous system to um, pain messages. And again, I can talk about that a little bit later about those how those pain messages happen. But what basically what happened was my body had got so used to pain messages that whether the pain was due to damage, which at that point, of course, it was, but whether pain was due to damage or not, I was very often getting pain messages because that was what my brain was used to receiving. Did they diagnose the injury in your back? Not at that time, no. So fast forward, um, probably in my late 20s, um, I... um, so I was pregnant with, was always with Ruari, just had my first child. And, and when I was pregnant with Taryn, my first daughter, uh, whose birthday it is today, actually. She's 36 oh, happy today. Happy birthday, Taryn. Yeah. Um, when I was pregnant with her, we had two dogs. And um, I was at 10 weeks before I was due. 
the two dogs, they were Belgian shepherds, the two dogs uh, and I were out, you know, taking the dogs. They were taking me for a walk. I was taking them for a walk, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and and they ran up behind me and knocked me behind under the, the knees. And I went into early labor at 10 weeks old. Now I landed flat on my coccyx there as well. So my back's not having a lot of joy by this no. stage. <laughs> I'm not really accident prone. I have to tell you, I'm not normally accident prone. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't. There's just these kind of key events. And um, then, you know, that kind of progressed. But then when I was, after I'd had the kids, I had two children, um, two biological children. And um, there were times when my back got really, really bad. And there's a, a quite amusing incident in the book where at the time, when Taryn was young, we used to have milkmen that came to deliver to the door. And my poor milkman had to uh, rescue me with my bum in the air and my head down because I got <laughs> stuck in this kind of <laughs> looking over the cot of my daughter. And I got completely stuck bending over the cot and bottom in the air in a bikini. Not a good look. Trust me, really not a good look. And I'm yelling out to this poor milkman, can you come and save me? Can you come and save me? <laughs> Not a nice, the poor guy's probably got post-traumatic stress for the rest of his life. <laughs> it was probably the best day of his life with you in a bikini. <laughs> so, so I guess my back has plagued me for a long time. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's mm. funny. Um, so when did it start getting to the point where it mm. was like disgusting? Was, yeah. Like, what was the sort of the catalyst? I think it was 2010, 2014, yeah. where you were in dire straits. Yeah. So a lot happened. I, in, when I was in my early 30s, I went to see a, a specialist who said to me, Dawn, um, there are kind of multiple issues wrong with your back. There's, there's nothing that we can specifically do surgery on, um, but there's a whole lot of nerve damage and issues around that and um but we could probably do something about your hip and I said my hip what's wrong with my hip he said oh you could probably have a hip replacement he said but really what you need to do is um cut back your work or stop your work relax do very, you know, just relax and do very little like cut what you do in your life down by 80 percent and again I've written about this in the book and I said You've got to be kidding me. I've just started my career. I was doing really well. I had two young children. I had a husband who traveled a lot for his work. What are you telling me? Here am I, a passionate woman building my career up, and you're telling me to stop? You know, rocks in your head. Absolutely not going to happen. So I continued doing what I was doing at the pace I was doing it, which was fast-paced, um, to be fair. I used to go and give presentations around the country and internationally. Um, and so the, my career was building, um, and it was, it was very busy. It was very busy. So at around 2012, um, 2013, it had got to the point where it was constantly bad. We had moved to, um, to Northern New South Wales in, in 2012 and just built a new home, which was fabulous on acreage, absolutely brilliant. We built it specially so we could provide free respite for families in need, which we did. 
and it was a fabulous experience. In fact, it was one of the things that kept me going, to be honest. And it was on five acres overlooking hundreds of acres. And so a really gentle, beautiful space to be in, which was wonderful. Um, but, and then I, and I got a job, we moved from Brisbane to Northern New South Wales, and I got a job as a manager of a mental health program. Fantastic, brilliant, so happy, thought I'm doing so well. I had income protection. My husband by then had had, unfortunately, a couple of heart attacks and could no longer work um, or was working just a little bit. And um, we look, we were looking to see how we could kind of cut back a little bit on our, on our expenses. A common conversation, I think, for people at the moment, particularly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we thought, well, I've had income protection all this time. I'm doing so well. I'm, I'm in a great position. By the way, I had been married for 25 years. Unfortunately, that marriage finished, and I was remarried to Neil um, in 2012. So this was all happening 2012, 2013. Um, and I... do you think that the do you think that the trauma of the divorce, the emotional trauma, also added to the pain? Um, look, stress is a major factor in pain. It could have definitely been part of the tipping point, but I don't know because it had gone on. For so for long, so long. But without doubt, Fiona, and I think it's a really good point. Managing stress in the life of anybody, anyone managing stress is, is is ideal. But certainly, when you have a chronic condition, any chronic condition, whether it's pain or anything else, stress is a major factor in getting in having your system overly sensitized. And we need to desensitize our system in order to manage that pain in this instance. So, yes. Absolutely. That was a, a good comment. Um, so anyway, so we we got married, had um, built this beautiful home. Everything was going really well. Got this new job. I phoned up my insurance guy and I said, look, you know what? I don't think I need income protection. I'm doing I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm in a great space. He said, oh, Dawn, why don't you just why don't we just hold it for six months and see how you go? And I said, no, I'm fine. He said, no, I'll tell you what, we can hold it for six months. Well, he saved our house. He saved everything because three months later, it hit the fan. So I remember during the job, which was a stressful job. So good point again there, Fiona. It was a very stressful job. I was having difficulty focusing, difficulty concentrating. My back was really um playing up big time so I was really trying to deal with pain which you know pain makes you grumpy certainly don't sleep well very frustrating oh, it's awful it's it, awful. It, it's, it is horrible yeah. and when there's no respite from it mm. and you're not sleeping you're not catching up on sleep it's a very difficult space to be in so I remember sitting again I've written about this sitting on the wall outside the office with my head in my hands and I phoned up um, my insurance guy and I said, I just, I'm just a mess. What can I do? And he said, Dawn, we'll kick in the insurance. You can't, you can't go on like this. You just can't go on. Like and he was one of the best. I know people really complain about insurance. You know, we have insurance when you go to claim, you know, you could never do it. But oh my gosh, he has been, and we still use him as our financial advisor now. He has been absolutely best for me and I am so lucky and I know for people that don't have income protection um, it's much more difficult but it gave us 
five years, which is exactly what I needed to actually go through what I went through, rest and repair, and come out to a point where I could start to work part-time again. You mm. commented on the difference between the parasympathetic uh, I mean, like, and parasympathetic nervous Thank system. You. Yeah. Explain that relationship to me, the differences. Okay. So uh, um, we have two main systems in our body, um, parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And what they do is help control um, our stress factor, really. So uh, uh, we need to calm our sympathetic nervous system, and that's the one that protects us from the threats and pumps the adrenaline in. So, for example, if you're being chased down, you know, by a brown bear down down the street of, you know, of Melbourne, for example, you want your sympathetic nervous system to kick in to save you from to go into flight or fight and to save you from that brown bear. You know, and by the way, if you see a brown bear in Melbourne, do to do let me know. It'd be quite newsworthy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've moved out after the election. I'm never going uh, back. Anyway, that's uh, another story. <laughs> but that's a whole other story in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, and the parasympathetic nervous system is the one that helps us slow down. It gets our adrenal, it slows down our adrenal, um, the release of um, adrenaline from our adrenal glands and allows us to calm down. So the sympathetic nervous system is really important because it keeps us safe. But very often our body thinks we need to be protected and protect us from danger. And the whole thing around pain, chronic pain, this is, is that our body tells us we're in danger when very often we're not, where we're not doing any more harm to our body. But the gateway, the gateway to the pain message has become almost elastic, relaxed, and therefore it, it allows a pain message to easily be triggered and our sympathetic nervous system to be activated. What we need to do as people who live with chronic pain is to recognize this pattern and to activate our parasympathetic nervous system before that pain gateway opens up to allow the pain signal to come in. And that's a so whole, how does... whole other conversation, Fiona. Oh, is it? Damn it. <laughs> uh, and maybe we can, because there, there's a lot to learn around pain and how it how it works. Um, but I think the bottom line is that, is that we recognize that we have a lot more control. And in fact, we fast forwarded to the end of the book because it talks about how I've learned. And I've learned a lot more. The book was written and released, maybe a few was released a couple of days before COVID hit. So it actually hasn't had much of a an opportunity to be out there. It's actually being re-released and it's going to be re-released in audio as well in the middle of next year, which Good. is great. Are um, you speaking? Are you doing the audio? We're in that conversation at the moment. I'm hoping so. Um, so that, that's currently being discussed. Um, and um, so I think one of, the, one of the things that's really important with chronic pain, and everybody is different. <laughs> I remember someone saying to me, oh, I'll carry on. Hold on. Then I'll go back to what somebody said to me. Um, I remember somebody, <laughs> see the brain, the brain all crumbled. Um, one of the things that we really do need to understand as someone living with chronic pain is that there's a lot of control we do have really to manage our pain. 
But if someone had said that to me when I was in the midst of my despair, I think, you know, I'd have murdered them. I'd have, I'd have absolutely, and I'm not a murderous type, uh, but I really, I would have said, you don't understand. You've got no idea. I've tried everything I can um, and, and you're just dismissing me. And, and I think there's a very fine line on the narrative we use and how we say that, how we give that message to people, because very often we're looking externally, and this happens in a lot of things, not just pain, actually. There's a lot of things around pain that actually can be applied to a lot of areas in our lives, that we often look externally for something to be fixed. And sometimes that's appropriate. You know, there are some things pain-wise, absolutely, that can be fixed with physio, with caro, with surgery, with all sorts of different modalities. Yes. But there are some things that can't be fixed um, or can only be minimized in terms of their impact, but can't be, you know, completely, completely exterminated, if you like, or taken away. So at, when it's at that point, we need to be looking at what can we do to make those changes. And But you can only do that when your mind is more settled, when you are validated when you are believed, when you're, especially when you've got non-disease-related non chronic pain, so not something like cancer or diabetes or other, other awful, awful um, conditions that cause pain, but seem to be less stigmatized. There's a lot of stigma around chronic pain. It's often called the invisible disease because you're not, you don't have a cast, you're not in a wheelchair. Not necessarily. I mean, some people are. Of course, some people are in wheelchairs or use walkers, various things. But there are a lot of us that are not. And mm. and I'm grateful for that. Don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful for that. But there are times when you feel that you're not believed, that you're not validated. And this non-disease-related chronic pain now with neuroscience is understood better in terms of, as I was touching on before, how the pain message you know, it goes, gets to the brain and how that's then delivered to the body. But prior to this neuroscience, you know, probably only in the last five or six years, have we really understood how brain, how, how the brain activates the pain message? So for the listeners, and I know that we spoke about this a little while ago, for the listeners that don't know, I live in, with chronic pain. I've got TMJ issues. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying really resonates sorry no please don't apologize i think this is just showing fiona that a we never know who we're talking to and what their story is i think that's that's an important message i think people listening to this would have seen you as fiona the podcaster but actually, you're not just Fiona, the podcaster. You're Fiona that's got a whole lot of stories in your life. Um, for me, it's just, for me, it's the exhaustion like that yeah. comes with it. And the, yeah. For those that don't know, TMJ is your jaw joint, so you can't avoid it. It's not like you can sit down and rest it. It's swallowing, it's eating, it's talking, it's everything. Um. So it's it, it's a challenge, but for me, it's the absolute exhaustion that comes yes. with the pain, and 
you know, the amount of experts that you go and talk to and you just walk away and go, they're not going to, like, they don't get it. They're not going to help me. Like, that's not the, I know that's not going to help the situation. Yeah. And it's, and then there's that, that's why I was, yeah. Yeah, then there's that feeling that if, of helplessness. Well, of helplessness, but also frustration because you get a sense that, if you don't take up their suggestion, you're not trying hard enough or they think you're not trying hard enough. It's like when very well-meaning people say, oh, have you tried this this or that? And if you haven't, it's like when you really aren't giving it your all, are you? Yeah. And, and that's so frustrating. But I think the exhaustion, Fiona, and that emotion always being so close to the edge because of the exhaustion – is also enhanced when you're on a lot of medication. Your brain is scrambled. I was at the point where I could hardly put two words together. Um, I mean, my tipping point, when, when I had my tipping point, my husband had to basically feed me and toilet me on and off for three years. Um, most of the time I was either in hospital, in bed, or just about maybe being able to walk around my, the house. Um, so I was very confined very much confined to the bedroom. In fact, perhaps I can read a little something from the book that maybe explains that a bit more. By 2014, the pain was so, I'm going to cry when I read it, I know, the pain was so debilitating, so dehumanizing, that I felt like I was losing my grip on life. And the pain monster found a new friend, a sadness monster, an isolated being who no, no longer looked sounded or behaved like the person my family and friends once knew and loved. It was hard to believe that I could become so medically pathetic and that the medical profession couldn't help me. It wasn't any wonder my family and friends doubted the truth of my situation. Well, maybe they didn't, but I had a fear that they did. After all, I tried everything and nothing was helping. In 50 years, I'd had more than 20 major stomach and spinal surgeries. Between 44 and 59, I had 25 hospital admissions. Each time I told myself that I'd wake up a new person, that I would be free from not knowing from not knowing when the pain was going to strike. You see, the old me, the then dawn, was always positive, always believing that things will turn out for the best. But today, 12th of June, 2014, I hate that my bedroom is full of painkillers and bedpans rather than candles and pretty lingerie. The then dawn has disappeared. Yesterday was the day I decided I didn't want to live anymore. Somehow I survived yesterday. Today I pray that I face a new beginning, yet I find myself facing more of the same. I can't shake that slow, insidious realisation that I've lost everything that matters to me. My ability to work in a job I once loved. My relationship as I had known it with my husband. The simple pleasures in life like enjoying time with family and friends sipping hot mockers at seaside cafes and taking long walks on the beach with my dogs. I wanted my life back, but it had disappeared, teasing me with what was and mocking me cruelly with the remnants that were left. Now every day is a struggle. I'll stop there. (sighs) What made you be so raw and honest when you were writing the book rather than coming from it from a clinical viewpoint Mm. 
there's a lot of clinical stuff. It wasn't about clinical. It, there's nothing in my book. Well, there's a little bit about in my book about managing the pain. I wanted people to have conversations. I wanted people to understand what it's like. I mean, I'm a researcher. I've got a PhD. I'm a clinical counsellor. If anyone could have got through this, you'd think I could have. I mean, I have now. Well, I'll come. I'll come to that where I'm at now. But I was stuck. I was so stuck. And with all of the, all of the fortunate education and, and opportunity I had, and the career that I had, I was not able to get myself out of that desperate funk. Um, and I think and- that's an important note. I mean, if your your comment in terms of if anybody could or should have been able to in terms of your knowledge and resources and access and everything, it doesn't make a difference really, does it, when you're in that level of pain? The level of pain, brain scramble, so many yeah. medications that I could hardly put a few words together. Um, I, I just wasn't me anymore. I had So one of the things that I did decide to do was, um, and this is not for everybody, this is absolutely not for everybody. This is my not decision. Not clinical medical advice. No, thank you. Exactly right. I decided to come off my meds because I felt I'm still on, and I've, again, I talk about this in the book, I was still on so many meds and I wasn't getting any better and I was still in horrible pain. I was still constantly needing something more. And nothing was helping. So what was the point in completely scrambling my brain when I, it wasn't helping? So I needed, I decided somehow in that murkiness, I did go, there, there was a tipping point for me for getting better, which is in the book. And it was somebody who stopped and listened. And basically she said, and I and I run little workshops on this because it's really important. It's just a one-hour workshop, and it's it's a really important message. He sat with me. He didn't try and tell me what to move or what I should think or how I should be. Or he sat with me when I was in I was in a ten-week rehab program as an inpatient, and she said to me, "What do you need, Dawn? What do you want?" And I said, "I want to die." And she just sat and she held my hand. Didn't say anything. Didn't say, don't be silly. You'll get better. She just sat. That was the beginning of my healing. She's a physiotherapist. Absolutely brilliant. And I've worked with her for years. And it was mainly, it was, it was nothing. She couldn't touch me because the fibromyalgia and everything, I'd just scream. There was no way that she could do anything physically with me. But we did some good mind-body, mind-body-soul work, breathing, just just getting, getting the parasympathetic nervous system activated, basically. That's what we were doing. We were quietening the sympathetic nervous system and activating the parasympathetic. And interestingly enough, she's just finished her PhD on the gaps in knowledge of physios who go in thinking that they they want to fix something, but actually not being very good at all in working with chronic pain. And she was, I was just so lucky to have found Shelley. She's called Sharon in the book. Um, but just so, so lucky because she was my saving grace. And I think what's such a good lesson 
is that sometimes it's not about fixing something. Whoever you are, whether you're a friend, a family member, a colleague, it's about sitting in the silence, sitting in that space and validating that's how that person feels at that time. Have you ever spoken to her and asked her why she sat with you and just held held your hand? Like, did you ever sort of, have you ever had that conversation? Because some people would have just left you in in terms of, oh, just we won't do a workout or whatever it was at session today. I'll just leave you and you know, and you rest or something. You know, in in a kind way, not mm. um, you know. But what was it? Have have you ever had that conversation to say why? Did you actually just sit with me that day? I don't have to with Shelley because it's who she is. Oh, it's her natural gorgeous. way. I've seen mm-hmm. her working. It's 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 inherently her. It's, it's authentic. It's and I think that authenticity just came through. Um, and I, by the way, I wasn't in a session, a physio first session. At that point, I was so debilitated. I was in bed. I was mentally and and physically debilitated. I was in bed in hospital, and and I couldn't attend any sessions. I just wasn't up to it. Um, so she came into me and, but it it is authentically her. So to turn off the, the sympathetic. You're fascinated by this, aren't you? (laughs) I am. I'm interested in terms of it from a brain point of view in Uh regards to how we can, how we can help. So it's the parasympathetic that we've got to switch on. Correct. The parasympathetic nervous system. Which is the adrenals. And I would have thought that would have been the one you need to switch off. Mm -hmm. No. So. Um, it helps to slow down the adrenal flow. Ah, okay. The sympathetic nervous system gets the adrenal flow going from that flight or fight side of things. Right. The parasympathetic okay. slows it down. Right. So that's the one that we need to activate. Yes. Got it. Yes. That's what was so confusing So think of me. a parachute slowly coming down. Okay. And that's through the mind-body Yes. Breath work. Okay. Meditation. And, and I work with clients and the work that I do with clients and the pain management, but not just for this, anything to do with anxiety. Because anxiety, what anxiety does, and of course, for those of us that live with pain, anxiety is a major issue. Um, what anxiety does, whether it's pain related or not pain related, is it gets you in that flight or fight. You know, we get a message from our into our amygdala that the, the amygdala part of our brain that just says, oh, you're in danger, I need to activate the, adre- the adrenaline for you or I need to send a message to the other part of your brain, the hypothalamus, and say, release this adrenaline and this cortisol so you can escape from the danger you're in. But as I mentioned before, most of us are not physically, thankfully, having to run and use that energy. So what happens is it becomes a pressure cooker that adrenaline and cortisol stays in our body, becomes a bit of a pressure cooker inside our body. And that's why we get that really anxious feeling. It's trapped. So we need to untrap it, but ideally stop it getting to that point of our brain in the first place. And when I work with clients, I do a lot of work about stopping, helping them stop the message, get to the point of releasing the adrenaline. When you're lying in the bed in your own words, really wanting to die because you were so desperately um, unwell. What? How did you crawl yourself 
and I know everyone's going to be different, but how did you crawl yourself back out of that hole? Mm. You mentioned that Shelley sitting with you, Sharon in the book, was sort of the first path and the first step for that. Like, how did – what were the other steps? Like, how did you end up crawling yourself back to where you there are was, now? Yeah. There was a lot of things, a lot of reasons – how I managed to um, and embrace, ultimately embrace the now dawn and let go of the then dawn. That was that's a big thing longer term. But at that time, I was in a ten week rehab program, and because I then trusted Shelley, I started doing some work with Shelley. And look, there were some days that I was able to move more, and she encouraged me to move through the fear because there's a lot of fear when we're working with pain, and I use the acronym, if you'll excuse F being the four-letter word, everything and run, you know, that's, I don't know what I can say on the podcast. So I'm a bit you can say anything you want, we'll oh, say okay. it. <laughs> we'll so, say, fuck, yeah. fuck, don't. Okay. So fuck everything and run. Um, <laughs> I didn't know if it would go beep, 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 beep. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, so, you know, fear, you get so scared that that pain's going to hit again that you tense your body, and that's the worst thing you can do. The best thing you could do is breathe slowly and get some gentle breath and get some control back. But, of course, for most of us that live with pain, because we've had it for so long, i.e. it's chronic, um, and by the way, chronic pain is pain that's been going on for over three months, just for definition. Um, and so we we stress, I mean, sorry, we seize up because, oh, God, it's got to come. here it comes again. Oh, no. And then we tense our muscles, and that's the worst thing that we can do. So that fear is one of the first things that needs to be dampened down a little bit. And Shelley helped me with that because, because I trusted her. I trusted her. And so she helped me gradually overcome. No, she helped me gradually reduce the fear enough to start working on the brain messages. I have to say, I did have, I will, I will just go back a bit and say, and again, it's in the book that I did actually have a hip operation in, I can't remember the date, but Taryn wanted to get married. Again, this is, this is in the book. I, I wanted to dance at her wedding. Um, and I think it's 14, 15 years ago now, maybe, uh, maybe 15. She'll tell me off for not knowing the date of her wedding anyway but anyway um sorry Taz and um I wanted to dance at her wedding there was no way I was at, by that stage using a stick and so I've kind of gone back in time now uh, 10 12 years 14 years 15 her daughter's oldest daughter's 14 so it's 15 16 years and um she she gave me the greatest gift which was time so I um had my right hip replaced which made a very big difference but it took me a year to get over that because of the other complications of my back. I'm now in a situation where my left hip's stuffed, but um, I, there's no point having anything done because there's so much arthritis and nerve damage around it that the surgeon said, you know, even if, even if the hip surgery is successful, it's probably not going to help you a lot with your pain because there's so much else. So you kind of, you've got to accept what you're stuck with <laughs> and learn how to manage it but it's that it's I think fear is so is so um what's the word I'm looking for 
it holds you so tight. What's the word? Help me out if you're not coping. I've lost the word. It, um, it's so gripping. It's so debilitating. Yeah. That's the word I was that's, looking that's, for. Yes. Fear is so debilitating. And once you start, A, understanding how pain works in the body, have have a good advocate in your corner, very important, or a number of advocates in your corner, and start to acknowledge the fear then you can start to work on the fear and start to reduce that tension you constantly hold in your body. And anyone could practice it. Anyone listening now could say, you know, tense your shoulders and see how that feels. You're bound to feel some kind of pain somewhere when you do that. Something's tightened up a bit more than somewhere else in your body. So it's kind of logical. Mm. You, A lot of the book, um, the blurb and so forth is – about educating the families of the people that are in pain, what it's like. Was that because you knew how hard it was for others around you to understand what you were going through? Yeah. And my husband, I mean, I was newly married. I I have this wonderful, I have, let me make that clear. I have this wonderful husband and um, we couldn't communicate. We couldn't talk because he wanted to fix it, you know, he, he he loves me. He wanted he hated seeing me in pain. Mm. He couldn't fix it. I get annoyed with him for wanting to fix it or not being able to fix it. Um, if he tried to touch me or hug me, I'd scream or I'd withdraw because it hurt. So you're starting to not be able to have physical contact. Sex is completely out of the question, you know, absolutely. Um, and and he didn't know what to do. You know, he didn't know what to do. And I couldn't tell him what to do. And that was what I try and talk about in the book, to have conversations about what you need because you can't expect your partner to know what you need if you, can't, if you don't know what you need. So if you don't know what you need, how are you meant to explain that to your partner? Yeah. yeah. So getting help through someone who works in pain, a pain counsellor, a pain specialist, someone like myself who can actually help you identify what it is that you need. It's not that simple, um, but it, it can be unpacked, definitely can be unpacked and needs to be unpacked. And it might be as simple. So, for example, when I was able, I might want to, and it sounds ridiculous for someone who's been a career woman forever, want to, want to hang the washing out because Neil had to do everything for me everything and I felt like I was a burden to him I felt like it was unfair suddenly he had to do the lot and you know if he took the washing out the machine and put it in a basket I couldn't do any of that but I wanted to hang it up because a I felt I was contributing but actually the exercise when I was able to do it minimal though it sounds but putting the washing up on the line was something that was good for me to do and a sense of achievement um and he would go, no, no, I'll do it. And I'll go, no, I'll do it. He'll say, no, no, sit down. Neil, let me do it. You know. So conversations like that about when I say I can do it, I mean I can do it. Please don't try and assume what I'm able. Yes, you need to pace, not race. I hate that expression. I hate it with a passion, but it's true. You need to do what you can, but don't push yourself to the point that you're then out to it for the next three or four days. And poor Neil's just trying to help you out and, you know. Of course. Yeah. So that's an example 
of how the miscommunication can happen. And when you can't make up with a hug or, you know, there's constant, well, you know, your partner's being pushed away. Another example was um, my daughter, the one who was married, who got married, is married. Um, she got to a point where she wouldn't bring the kids around. And I was, I write about this in the book and how devastated I was because when I, when I did have a really bad episode, I would scream involuntarily. I would drop to the ground. I'd lose, I'd become incontinent. I'd often vomit. Um, it was not a pretty sight. And then to move me even you know, a metre from one place to the other to try and get to a bed could take 45 minutes, an hour of me screaming to be able to move. Not pretty. The trouble is it, it was you never knew when it was going to happen. That was another thing with my in my situation anyway. I never knew when that was going to hit. So you stop seeing anybody. So I couldn't be the grandma I wanted to be. I couldn't be the mother I wanted to be. Um, I couldn't. Not only could I not look after my grandkids on my own, I couldn't even see them with my daughter because she didn't want to, and I get it, but I was very hurt at the time, but she didn't want to expose them to such a horrific scene, which it was. I was looking at your website and you have um, blogs that you put up in video form for a couple of minutes long um, on YouTube and you were talking about chronic pain and the parallels in terms of the isolation with COVID, uh-huh. with the lockdowns and everything. Talk a little bit through sure. of that and, and what you meant by that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people during COVID experienced isolation from their family, from their friends. And for many that I've spoken to in my work, um, it's changed their sense of self. It's changed how they see themselves and it's changed the careers. Very many, the way in which they work has become very different, as you well know. And um, I say, as you well know, I'm assuming I do. I was in Melbourne. I don't know that you know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. So, um, so that isolation of feeling being cut off from the world as you knew it um, has made profound changes for many people, and that is exactly what happened with what happens with chronic pain with people living with chronic pain. I guess selfishly. And this is a really selfish thing to say, um, but I won't apologize for it, is that I'm pleased that other people kind of get it a little bit now because, again, I'll come back to the stigma that's attached to living with chronic pain. And all of the, I say invisible, for those that know you, they can see it in your eyes, they can tell when you're not well, can certainly see if you're hobbling or screaming. Uh, that's very obvious. But the day-to-day <laughs> living with chronic pain um, is not evident to people that don't know you. Um, well, you get very good at masking it You do as well. And, it, and, in fact, one of my chapters, I think, is called Behind the Mask. And, and in fact, I was part of a writing group, which was part of my healing, actually, as well as my dogs, which I have to, I have to talk about my dogs at some point. Um, <laughs> talk away. Yeah. But the writing group, there was one particular day in the writing group when we were asked um, we did exercises, and one was about write something about a mirror. And I wrote a poem um, about 
pain. It came immediately like that, like the children's book I wrote about my dogs. I've written four kids' books about my dogs during this time. And um, I wrote a poem, which is in my book. I'm not going to read it because you'll have to get the book to, to see it, <laughs> to read it. But it's called Mirror, Mirror, Mirror. And it's about the mask and it's about how we portray one thing and, uh, you know, and there's something very different, very dark and kind of insidious behind that behind that mirror um so when i wrote it i literally wrote it in five minutes i used to always think in rhyme that hasn't happened for a while and in fact while i was lying in bed all of that time i lots of little poems came to me about my dogs and once i was getting better that year four i think it was um i not year four schooling the fourth year of this happening um i so I wrote the poems down, and then my girl said to me, Mum, why don't you put them in a book for the kids, for the grandkids? No. Anyway, cut long story sideways. I wrote four books about my dogs, Oodles of Fun, a series called Oodles of Fun, Oodles of Fun at the Beach, Oodles of Fun in the Playground, Oodles of Fun Bath Time and Oodles of Fun. Um, and the dogs are oodles, by the way, a cavoodle, a spoodle, a labadoodle, and a goodle, in case you hadn't guessed that by that stage. <laughs> um, and and it was really cathartic for me. I, I ended up getting um, finding a um, an illustrator in Turkey and working with an which is a whole new experience. If I hadn't had this pain experience, if I hadn't been forced to be home for five years, I would never, ever have gone down that creative track and it was absolutely fantastic and amazingly for me I'm very very lucky they were approved by the education department just coincidentally and because I I think my educational psychology background I'd written them in a way that they actually were great for kids with um, dyslexia because they were written in rhyme with a wavy rather than a straight line and each word was in color so subconsciously well, I just thought it was pretty, actually, but you know, <laughs> clearly there was something else happening there. But the lovely thing about part of my healing as well was one of my dogs, Dougal the Cavoodle, um, is. <laughs> <laughs> now, don't laugh. That's I've trained a great him as, name. A, as a story dog, and I've always been um, very interested in kids' literacy and the importance of education. And I've been very fortunate to have been given a very good education, which has allowed me to take some paths that I've taken and so I've always wanted to give back and as I said before was a foster parent for many years and reading was always a big thing in our family and so I don't know if anyone's heard of story dogs if you haven't looked them up they're a wonderful national charity and we take our dogs into the school and we help kids who have difficulty reading and the dogs really sit there look lovingly at the child the child reads to the dog and, oh, wow. and it's completely non-judgmental. And Dougal, I'll have to send you a photo, Fiona, afterwards of oh, Dougal. Oh, please do. In his, in his story dog little coat. And he just sat there looking with those big eyes, just being beautiful. And there's people all over the country, part of this wonderful, wonderful national charity. So that was really cathartic to me because I couldn't work in the early stages. So I was able to go to our local school I got Dougal trained which was fun for me and I was doing once a week two hours a week that was my start getting back into a commitment of something 
and they were very good when I couldn't do it, which did happen at times. They were flexible with the day, so they were very good. How important were the dogs and your animals around you in terms of your recovery? Great question. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely essential and still are. So mm. in the mornings, I really struggle because I usually have a bad night's sleep. Nighttime's the worst for me pain-wise, mm. actually. And so it often takes me two to three hours in the morning to start to feel a little bit more normal and clear in the head. Um some people might argue I'm never normal, but we'll move on from that. <laughs> Maybe I get normal the same wasn't comment, right Dawn, you know? yeah. And you know what? Normal is overrated. Normal I is think overrated. So. What is normal? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Boring. Um, so um with the with the dogs, when when I was in that really difficult state, they weren't supposed to be allowed in the bedroom, right? But they the four of them would sit and by the bed and they so so sensitive to my needs and if neil tried to get them out you try getting 16 paws who are absolutely determined to not leave their mum's side Just completely ground themselves on the floor yeah. unless he wanted to rip the carpet to pieces it was just not a happening thing so the dogs were fabulous also because um, at that stage there's no way i could walk the dogs but as i mentioned before we had five acres and we had alpacas and at some point we had cows and we had goats and those all of the animals to me were really 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 um pivotal in getting me up getting me out um walking around the property so exercising feeling safe so that if i had a problem i'd always have a phone with me always so if i had a problem i could call neil and um he could come and get me wherever even if i was free three steps away from the front of the house, um, he could get me if needed. So I felt safe doing that. So I got out. And and as we all know, animals are just fantastic. They help release the oxytocin in our body, our happy chemicals. It really helps, again, get the parasympathetic nervous system activated. So there's a whole lot of research around. In fact, funny enough, when I finished my first degree, uh, I was at London University, and they actually offered me to do a PhD then, but I wasn't ready to do a PhD. I hadn't lived, I hadn't done anything. Um, I've always studied because I was passionate about the issue, not because I wanted to be an academic. That was never, ever the thing I wanted to do. Okay. Yeah, never. Um, and so I didn't want to do a PhD, but what I did want, if I was going to, it was going to be on animal therapy. And interestingly enough, I mentioned I'm 64 next month. So all of those years ago when I was 21, there was no such thing. There was nobody that even could have a conversation with me about it. Wow. Yeah. It's so but mainstream now. That's I incredible. Know. So that's how far we've come. And I go into schools. I, I do a lot of supervision, I think I mentioned before. And I also counsel and supervise teachers um, just because it's such a stressful job. And I go into schools and and support them in the schools at times. And some of the schools now have beautiful therapy dogs. Absolutely. Well, they're all beautiful, but have therapy dogs. And, you know, it's becoming much more accepted. So if I was to have my life again, I would actually definitely, definitely um, train as an animal therapist. Do you have to train as an animal therapist to take the dogs and animals into the hospital wards? No, what you know, um, your dog needs to be vaccinated and um, well behaved. 
that's all. If you're providing animal therapy per se and being paid for it, then that's a whole different story. But if you as a volunteer are taking your animal in, it does depend entirely, obviously, on the policy of the um, organisation that you're going to. But I have taken... So I used to visit a lovely lady who lived next door. So in the early stages, when my back started to get really bad, um, when we were building our house, we were renting a house, and the lady next door was an older lady, who sadly has has since died, but um, he... I used to go and see her every day. I was finishing my PhD at the time, so I was home. And I would go and see her every day and take a cake and sit and have a cuppa with her and whatever. Her family, you know, were quite busy and didn't have quite have as much time as I could just pop in next door. And anyway, ultimately, she went to an aged care facility in the next um, in the next town. And I would go and visit her once or twice a week. And I would often take one of the dogs in and one of them the bigger one Barnsey um who is a labradoodle and is quite tall is he named after Jimmy Barnes I knew you were going to ask that no he's actually oh up. damn it <laughs> but my daughter does have a buddy and a holly if that's any help <laughs> um I know everyone asked that question he's actually very naughty he was named after my my brother-in-law, whose surname is Barnes, and he doesn't particularly like dogs and always mocks my dogs. And so I thought I'd call him Barnsley just to annoy my brother-in-law. <laughs> that's gold. <laughs> so that's the story of Barnsley. Actually, they're all rehomed, the dogs. They're all dogs that needed to be rehomed that we've taken on, which is lovely. But anyway, so I would visit her and I would take the little one, Dougal, in a fair bit. But Barnsey, I would take up to the dementia ward because he was tall. He's kind of just up to my knees, if not a bit taller. And actually brilliant for me as well. I mentioned that in the book. He got more pats than any of the other dogs because I didn't have to bend down. Um, of course. And he, know, he knows that now, so he's constantly, constantly <laughs> nudging me. He's the nudgy dog. Um, so the dogs have been really, really important. And it's funny, I was speaking to a client yesterday who has chronic pain and she was talking, oh, I don't know whether to get this dog or not get this dog. And I said, well, I'm going to put my bias hat on now because I know as a counsellor I'm meant to be unbiased, but let me tell you my story and then you make up your mind. <laughs> so Please said, right, tell me she got the dog. <laughs> at the end of the session, she said, right, I'm phone, next phone call is I'm going to go and pick up the dog. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I hope you get to the next session after that. You oh, get to see the dog. Yeah, I've good. insisted on photos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, Dawn, the book is available where? Yeah. So, either on my website, drdawnmcintyre.com, or through Booktopia. Or you can get it, um, you can go to the library. If it's not actually in the library, ask that it is on the library. Um, database so if it's not there living with chronic pain from okay to despair and finding my way back again just in case you didn't get the title in the first instance <laughs> um, you can ask for them to order it in or you can go to any bookshop and ask the same question as I mentioned before because it was launched just before covid it actually didn't get the bookshop exposure that we were hoping it would get but the mm -hmm. more people ask for it the more it's the kind of thing you don't know what you want unless you see it it's one of those tricky things. If it's not on the shelf, you don't know to ask for it. So thanks, Fiona, for the opportunity to get people to ask for oh, it. Oh, no, pleasure. And I, and I think the important thing all through my website, you'll see all of the all of the standard 
you know, all of the standard ways that you can buy books, all the standard platforms are available through my website. So just click on click through to the book and then you can you can either, as I say, if you wanted if you want a signed copy, you can ask for one directly from me. Otherwise, unsigned copies through Booktopia, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. And I also noticed that you're offering counseling sessions through your website as well. I am. So I offer counseling and I offer supervision um, and I do also offer workshops. So if anyone wants to know a little bit more about my experience and how to move forward, then we I offer one and two hour workshops um, and that's also uh, on, the, uh, on the website. Tawn, what's, what's the plans now? You're promoting the book. What mm-hmm. else do you have in the works? Well, that's where it's tricky, Fiona, because I have to manage my pain. And Mm. so I get all excited about all of these opportunities. And the other thing, this is is a real truth coming out here, because I'm now managing my pain better, and I absolutely uh, say that, I'm managing it better. It doesn't mean it's gone. It's certainly gone to the extent that it was, but I'm managing it better. Um, I can't overload myself. I, I cannot... You know, so what I would really like to do, what I'm planning to do is actually a bigger workshop, like with six modules. Uh, But I'm trying to work with someone else to do that because I'm useless at all of the platforms and all of those things. So I need someone else. I've got the content. I need someone to put it together. So that's possible. But basically, continuing three and a half days a week and, you know, wanting to support people with chronic pain or any other chronic condition, to be perfectly honest, because there are so many similarities. But also, I think I mentioned before, and then I kind of got myself chatting, chatting away, missing missing the point, but um, I was a keynote speaker in the week, the week before COVID hit, and I remember it because it was the week before COVID hit, and there was this absolutely wonderful woman called Randa who was also a keynote speaker at this particular function and she was talking about autism and if anyone listening has actually got um anyone with autism in their family look up autism mates m-a-t-e-s autism mates she's amazing but she said if you've met one person with autism you've met one person with autism and it's the same with chronic pain we are all different there are common threads which clearly, Fiona, you you related to earlier on in our conversation. There are definitely common threads, but there are so many variables around which people's experience of their chronic pain is different. And that's why I love working with people individually and to identify what that is for them and how I can best support them in their own chronic pain journey with their own particular set of circumstances. Dawn, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've very much um, opened my eyes, validated, um, educated. It's been a really wonderful chat for me. So thank you so much. Thank you. And everyone, please go out and get Dawn's book. Reach out to her if you think that her services um, will be useful for, for you and for everybody that's dealing with chronic pain. Your journey is validated and uh, real. And for the family members, we hear how hard it is to to deal with it. So um, thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Fiona, for the opportunity. And have a great Christmas. Pace yourself. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Bye for now. 
Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 